I had on my mind as I was preparing the sermon, of all things, a nursery rhyme. I actually couldn't remember the whole nursery rhyme. I just remembered how it started. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? I couldn't remember. I knew there was something about shells, and I knew there was something about in a row, but I, I couldn't do it, so I had to go to my best friend, Mr. Google, the smartest man alive, and I got it from there. Do, do any of you know it well enough to finish it? Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow with silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row? Thank you, Ben. With silver bells and cockle shells. Now, that doesn't make any sense, does it? How does a garden grow with silver bells or with cockle shells or, or with pretty maids all in a row? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. In fact, I discovered that there seems to be some suggestion. There's no ultimate conclusion, but it may relate back to Mary, Queen of Scots, and her attempt to spread Catholicism. It may relate to some other period of English history that we know very little about. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? Now you say, why on earth was that silly little nursery rhyme on your mind while you were preparing this message? Because ultimately, the subject of these two parables that Kevin read for us this morning from verse 26 to verse 32 is about how Jesus' kingdom grows. Jesus, Jesus, how does your kingdom grow? And I won't bother trying to put together some doggerel and making it rhyme, don't worry. But the question of this parable, of these two parables, is Jesus, how does your kingdom grow? Now, this story, these ideas might have come as a very big surprise to the people that he was referring to, not because he was talking about a kingdom. Notice in verse 26, he says, so is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground. So he's talking about the kingdom. He's telling us that much. This story is about the kingdom. And he goes on to say in verse 30, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what comparison shall we compare it? I love this way of speaking. It's like he's inviting everyone in, and he's saying, how should we think about the kingdom of God? He's saying, you think about it. Do you have any ideas? How should we liken the kingdom of God? And it's as if he says, aha, the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed. Now, the problem, as I said here, is not about the subject, the kingdom of God. Because the people of Jesus' day were ready for a kingdom. They were expecting a Messiah to come who would build an enormous political kingdom. They were sick of living like slaves under the rule of Rome, the Roman Empire, the big kingdom of the world at that time. And the Jewish people were stubbornly independent, and they wanted to govern themselves. They didn't want to be under Rome. And they said, we're looking for a Messiah to come who's going to build this glorious kingdom as prophesied and promised in the Old Testament in our prophets. So the kingdom wasn't a surprise. In fact, even after Jesus had taught his disciples for three years, even after he had died for their sins on the cross, suffering this shameful death, even after he had risen from the dead and 
his disciples had seen him, what question was on their mind? In Acts chapter 1, do you remember the big question on their mind? Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Can't you just see them rubbing their hands together? In Acts chapter 1, Jesus, is now the time? You've died. You've risen from the dead. Is it time to throw off the shackles of Rome and establish our glorious Old Testament kingdom? And what does Jesus say to them? It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. The Father has put those times in his own power. Here's what I'm telling you. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll have power. And you'll have power to go be a witness of me to all nations, starting in Jerusalem and then going to Samaria and then to the uttermost part of the earth. You see, even then they didn't understand the kingdom. And here, Jesus is talking about how the kingdom grows. Notice with me in verse 27. He talks about the kingdom of God is like a man casting seed into the ground, and he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed should what? Spring and grow up. Verse 28, for the earth brings forth fruit of herself. Go down now to verse number 31. He says the kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown in the earth is less or smaller than all the seeds that be in the earth, but when it is sown, it groweth up and becomes greater than all herbs. So what is the main idea? It's about the kingdom of God growing. And in it, we're going to see something that would have been very surprising to his Jewish readers, perhaps very surprising to some of us, but ultimately, I hope, will be very encouraging, will be very comforting, will be very stabilizing in how you view the operation of the kingdom of God that is growing even today. The title of the message this morning is Kingdom Growth. Kingdom growth. Do you know how the kingdom grows? And do you know how the kingdom is growing in your life as you submit to the King Jesus on his throne? Let's start, first of all, by talking from the first parable that we looked at here about what I'm going to call the principle of growth. The principle of growth. And we'll focus for now on verse 26 through verse 29. So if you have your Bibles, we ultimately are learning from this book, not from this preacher. So I encourage you to have your Bibles out, whether you have them on your physical copy or maybe on your phone or tablet, wherever you have it, let's have our Bibles out if we have them and look at this together. What is the principle of growth from this first parable? Let's look at it. Verse 26, he said, so is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground. So he said, it's like someone, a farmer, taking seed and throwing it on the ground. Now, where did we hear this before in this chapter? Just a few verses ago, we saw Jesus talking about a parable of a sower who went out to sow seed and he scattered it around and some fell right by the wayside. It didn't have any topsoil and the birds just came and ate it up. And then he said there was other seed that was sown, but it was sown on very shallow ground. It only had a little bit of depth. And so it went down into the ground, and it sprung up right away, but it didn't have any root system. And so it just withered up when the sun came up and baked it. 
And then some other seed fell among the thorns. And so there were these weeds and these thorns around. And so it grew up, but the, seed, the weeds grew up around it, and it took the nourishment and the moisture, and the seed just ended up with no fruit. It was just lifeless. But then he said some of it went into good ground, free of hindrances, and that fruit sprang up. The, the seed sprung up. And something came very productively from it. So Jesus has already likened the kingdom of God to like throwing out seeds. And so now he comes back to that picture. It's like someone goes and throws seed on the ground. And look at verse 27. And should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how. Now this might seem very confusing. What is he saying? Well, think about a farmer. A farmer in Jesus' day was utterly dependent on what was natural around him. What could he do? He could take seed and he could drop it into the ground. And then what could he do? Could he produce rain? No. Could he go and genetically modify the seed so it would spring up more abundantly? No. Could he produce sunshine? No. So what does a farmer do? A farmer puts seed into the ground, and he goes to bed. And he gets up, and he goes about his business the next day, and then he goes back to bed. And then he gets up, and he goes about his business, and then he goes back to bed. And it's just this cycle of daily repeating over and over again. What's the point? What is the farmer doing to produce the crop? Something or nothing? Nothing. Because as Jesus is making a simple observation, there's nothing he can do. Now again, don't let our minds be polluted. Well, he can water, he can fertilize. That's not the point. Jesus is making a simple point. There is nothing ultimately that the farmer can do that is not ultimately natural. It needs water, it needs sunlight, it needs soil. He puts it into the ground and he waits because there's nothing ultimately natural. He can do. Now keep on going. The seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. So he's talking about something mysterious. He's saying the farmer puts it into the ground and he has no idea what's going on down there. Do you? Some of you are gardeners. You planted maybe a little, uh, maybe a little annual in your garden. Maybe you put down grass seed. Last Saturday, we put down grass seed out in the front of the church. Joel Lidberg and Luke and myself and some of the children were working diligently at that task. You know, I went out there and I looked just on Saturday and I didn't really see much springing up. I don't know what's going on down there. I have no idea how grass seed turns into a plant. Do you? It just does. That's what he's saying. He doesn't know how it's springing and growing up. But then he says in verse 28, for the earth brings forth fruit of herself. It's the earth that is producing the plant. First the blade, right? Just a little shoot springing up. Then the ear. So then it starts to mature and develop. After that, the full corn. And again, we've talked about this. This is wheat. It's not like maize corn, like corn on the cob. It's wheat. It's a corn of wheat. After that, the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So you see, again, the farmer sows, 
He does nothing. He just waits. The earth, the seed itself, brings up the crop. And then the farmer says, oh, ta-da. The wheat's here. Now comes the sickle in harvest. It's a very simple picture. And if I could just summarize it very briefly, I would say this. A man plants. He does nothing. And somehow crops grow imperceptibly, incrementally, and effectively. That's what I would say. If you would just summarize this parable. A man sows seed. He does nothing. He just waits. And somehow it produces crops. And it does so imperceptibly. He can't even tell exactly how it's growing. Incrementally, because it's just step by step. And effectively, because ultimately it produces fruit and he has a harvest. Now, okay, so now that we've got the picture, you say, what on earth does that mean? Well, when you're interpreting a parable, you need to be aware of a couple things. The first is, don't just try to allegorize everything in the parable. Don't try to say every single detail I need to work out perfectly as if Jesus is telling us a story, every single detail of which must click in perfectly. And I say this especially because unlike the parable of the soils, the parable of the sower that we looked at a few weeks ago, Jesus never explains this one. Jesus never tells us exactly what he means. He just says the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like this. And because Jesus hasn't told us exactly what he's saying, we should look for what the main point is. We should look for what the fundamental idea that he is. And here's another way that you can get to that. When you're reading through a parable, be asking yourself, what is standing out? What is he emphasizing here? What is Jesus pointing to as a special detail that seems a little bit odd in the broader context of the story? What is he focusing on? And if you answer, if you ask that yourself that question here in these few verses, I think you'll reach a couple things. The first is that the farmer is doing nothing. Remember, that's the point he really seems to be emphasizing. The farmer rises, goes to bed, and gets up night and day, and the seed is growing, and he doesn't even know how. That tells you the farmer does not have a part in it. So that's an interesting detail that Jesus seems to be emphasizing. So take that one. Then take the second point. In verse 28, the main emphasis is that the earth is bringing forth fruit of herself. It's not the farmer. There's something about the natural process that is springing up and creating. It's not artificial. It's not manufactured. It's something that it's doing what it's supposed to do. And then notice the last idea that seems to be emphasized here is that fruit is coming out. A harvest of wheat is coming, and now the farmer comes back to harvest it. You say, well, how does that help us reach what the main point is here? How is the kingdom of God like a man planting something, doing nothing, and then fruit growing up imperceptibly, incrementally, and effectively? I think what Jesus is getting at here is the idea of the kingdom of God growing up first in individual hearts, and then in a crop of individuals, a whole field of individuals, imperceptibly, incrementally, and yet effectively. Now, some would say that this is a parable about 
us evangelizing the world. We just throw seed down, and it's up to God. You know, Paul says that, that Paul sowed and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. It's all up to him. We just step back and wait, and then when we see people ready to get saved, we run out there, and we have a harvest to bring for God. Now, that's possible. It's possible, but I don't think it's the main idea. I don't think it's the main part in context when he's saying, so the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God seems to be referring here to the broader growth of the kingdom of God. How does the kingdom of God grow? It grows because seed goes down into individual hearts, into a whole field of individual hearts. And yes, we've already seen some falls on bad ground and it doesn't produce anything. But seed falls on good ground, and in that ground, in a sense, the field produces it of its own accord. The field springs up incrementally. It springs up nonetheless powerfully, and suddenly, before you know it, there's a harvest. And ultimately, it is harvested with fruit for God's kingdom. Now, if we're going to take this interpretation, which I believe to be the right one, what does it tell us about the seed itself? What is responsible for the growth of the field? Is it the farmer? Did the farmer do something magical with those seeds? No. The power is in the seed, right? The power to produce growth is where? It's in the seed. And you have a seed that when it goes down into the ground and has the right conditions, it will spring up and produce this kind of imperceptible, incremental, and yet effective growth. Do you know this is true even in just a biological sense? I read this, uh, a story recently. It's actually from 2020 from The Atlantic. And it told the story of seeds that had been found in archaeological excavations that were 2,000 years old. They were actually found in Masada, in, in current Israel, the place where there had been that great stand that the Jewish people celebrate so much in around A.D. 70 or so, A.D. 74. And there were others found in a community where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, if you're familiar with that discovery. 2,000-year-old seeds of date palms. And do you know what this archaeologist did and this professor? She took these seeds and she looked for the ones that were the most well-formed and the ones that were most put together, and she put them in the ground. And guess what? They started growing. In fact, one of them that was planted about 15 years ago or so actually is producing fruit. It was cross-pollinated with another date palm tree. Can you imagine seeds that are 2,000 years old going into the ground and fruit springing up? What explains it? The seed? The seed. It's the seed that really matters. And so here Jesus is talking about his coming and bringing a gospel seed, the seed of his word, the seed of his truth, the seed of himself, if you will. And this seed being spread about in a field, some of which has good ground, and it's as if the seed is self, itself is producing in cooperation with the soil 
growth. First the blade, then the ear, then the full wheat in the ear. Jesus makes a similar point when he's talking to John, or excuse me, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You remember Nicodemus is utterly confused about how someone could be born again a second time when, even when he's older. And he says, does he have to go back into his mother's womb a second time and be, be born? I don't get it. And Jesus says, you don't understand what it is to be born of the Spirit. And he makes a simple analogy. He says, everyone that is born of the Spirit is like the wind. The wind blows where it listeth, wherever it wants. And you can hear the sound thereof. You can hear. But you can't tell where the wind comes or where it's going. It's just the wind. You can't see it. It's mysterious. The working of the Spirit in human hearts ultimately is not something that we can always understand or perceive. I know not how, the hymn writer said, the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. I don't know how, but it does, and He does, and He brings about fruit. So there's this idea in which it's the power of the gospel itself that goes down into hearts and ultimately springs up and produces fruit. We could say the lesson is simply this. The power of kingdom growth is not in you. The power of your growing as a Christian is not in you. It's in the seed. It's in the gospel that goes down into your heart. In other words, you by just gritting your teeth and trying to become a better Christian is ultimately not the source of your growth. How the God and his word grows in you is in the imperceptible, incremental, and yet effective prospering of the gospel in your heart. Paul makes this point wonderfully in Philippians 2. This doesn't mean that we're to do nothing to cooperate with the power of that seed. Paul says, wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, he says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, bring it to the outside. Make it practical. Let it affect the way you live. Christian, are you letting your Christianity affect the way you live? Is it changing you? Are you living differently as a Christian than your unsaved friends? Work it out. Bring it to the outside. Why? Because listen to what he says. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You see the picture. Work out. Be practical in your Christianity because you have the power. No. Because the power is working inside you. And friends, do you know this is the source of all of your spiritual growth? How have you grown in your spiritual life recently? Has it been incrementally from the inside out because he is changing you to be more like his image? Are you growing in your love for other people? Are you growing in your love for your enemies? Are you growing in your love for him? They are almost imperceptible, like growing a stalk from the ground. 
slowly growing. You can't even, but then you look a week later and it's a little bit bigger. And you look a month later and it's even a little bit bigger. How does the kingdom grow? It grows by the power of the word, by the power of the gospel in you and in other Christians around you until the harvest comes. So trust the process. Trust the process of growth that God has for you by implanting his word, his gospel seed in your heart. Let's look not just at the principle of growth, but let's look secondly at the proportion of growth. Now let's shift to this second parable. Verse number 30. Will you look at it with me? And he said, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown in the earth is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. Now let's pause there. Maybe you've never seen a mustard seed. It's said that a mustard seed is about one millimeter big. Now, so I, I saw some attempts by commentators to, to calculate out something that we could really understand. I read that if you were to take the weight of a mustard seed and create an ounce, one ounce of mustard seeds, how many mustard seeds do you think you would need? Not quite that many. Fifteen to 20,000 seeds to create one ounce. That gives you just an idea. Some, one commentator said, I think, 21,000 to one ounce. So when Jesus is talking to the people who were in an agricultural society, and he's saying the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds that be in the earth, he wasn't speaking in a botanical sense. There actually are seeds, like the orchid seed, that are actually smaller. What Jesus was saying is he was appealing to what was the common understanding in their day. Oh, you want to have an, an illustration of something small? Choose the mustard seed. That was the smallest conception that was in their cultural mind, their understanding. It's a mustard seed. We do that all the time. We say something's as cold as ice. Ice is something that just reflects something that is really cold. And in that day, a mustard seed represented something that was the smallest of the seeds. And this is what Jesus is appealing to. Notice what then he says. It is sown in the earth. It is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it groweth up and becometh greater than all herbs and shooteth out great branches so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. Now think about this picture. You have a seed that is so infinitesimally small, and yet the point is it grows up. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen a mustard tree. Actually, frankly, it's, it's a little bit more like a shrub. It grows up in a garden but or in other wild places, but actually there is testimony that sometimes these shrubs, these bushes, grow up to trees that are more than 10 feet tall and five to six feet wide, really significant um, uh, plants, really significant shrubbery. And Jesus is telling them this gets so large that birds can actually get into those branches and find shade and find shelter, potentially even nest in them. And you say, okay, well, how does that have anything to do with the kingdom of God? Well, what's the point? What is Jesus emphasizing? Something that is the smallest of the herb seeds 
becomes the largest of the herb garden plants and shrubs. How can something go from the smallest to the largest? Completely disproportionate to the size of the seed is the size of the plant. That's the main idea. That's what he's getting at. And to illustrate it, he says birds can come in and lodge in it. That's the image. Well, what does he mean by this? As I just said, the principle is about growth. The idea is about growth. And the proportion of it is completely out of proportion to what the size is. Now, I just should just raise two interpretations of this. You may have heard very popular a one that says the birds are actually bad things. Because do you remember in the parable of the soils that we looked at, what did the birds do to the seed? The birds came and ate it up. And so people take that and import it into this parable and say, what Jesus is saying is from very small beginnings, the kingdom of God grows so big and into such a monstrosity that actually Satan and evil forces infiltrate their way into the church and, and lodge under the trees of it. Now I can say there's a certain sense in which this application is true. If you were to look back across the history of the church, you would find great evil that has lodged in the branches of, if you will, formal Christianity, church movements and church institutions. We saw even a piece of that this week in the scandal that has enveloped the, the Southern Baptist Convention with the harboring of sexual abuse and the failure to truly deal appropriately and forcefully with that issue leading to more evil and more chaos and more wickedness. That is absolutely true. But I would ask you this, is there any sense in the parable itself that Jesus is referring to this as a bad thing? Is there any sense here that Jesus is saying, watch out for those birds? No, he's just using it as a principle, as the proportion of size. It's so small and it gets so big that even the birds can get in there. So I don't think that's the main meaning of that, though I think it is, could be applied. Other people have used this idea to appeal back to the Old Testament. There's a pictures that appear in the Old Testament, like in Ezekiel and in Daniel, where the kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom, becomes so large, like a tree, that birds come in. Ezekiel 17, God speaks of taking a twig off the tree, off this glorious cedar tree, and planting it. And he says, and it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar and under it shall dwell all fowl, all the birds of every wing in the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. And so these commentators take this mustard seed to refer to the Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God like birds and finding harbor under the great glorious kingdom that God has developed, And they suggest that the, the Jewish listeners of Jesus would have thought, oh, he's talking about Ezekiel 17. He's talking about that prophecy. That's possible. Again, I would say when you're reading parables that Jesus doesn't explain, look for the main point and stick most securely on the main point. What is the main point? That the kingdom of God grew from something very small. Friends, isn't it remarkable to think 
of the effect that Jesus of Nazareth has had on the entire world. A Galilean carpenter, an individual that would have appeared to be so insignificant, so out of the way, that if you were to go to anybody of prestige or authority in the Roman Empire, they would have said, why are you telling me about this guy? He has no relevance to me. There is nothing about him that I would desire of him. In fact, even when Jesus was referred to as coming from Nazareth, Nathaniel, one who would become his disciple, said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The people of the Jews, the Pharisees, when they heard that a prophet was coming out of Galilee where Jesus was from, they said, look and see, no prophet comes out of Galilee. Nothing can come from that barren wasteland spiritually. And Jesus says, even though my word, even though my gospel, my kingdom may come from, as it were, a mustard seed, the smallest possible kind of beginning, it will grow to utterly disproportionate size to its initial humble beginnings. Do you know this is the way God delights in working? Who was the great king of the entire Old Testament? Who was the great king? David. That was the one that all of the people of Israel looked back to. That's why the Messiah is said to be the son of David. Where did David come from? Bethlehem. A quiet, out-of-the-way place. Samuel came to the sons, to, to Jesse, the father of David, and said, bring all your sons in front of me. I'm going, to, I'm going to take a look at them. And Jesse doesn't even think to bring the youngest, David. He doesn't even think about it. He's off with the sheep. Don't worry about him. It is only when Samuel says, do you have any others, that David, the runt of the litter, comes out. And Samuel looks at him and God says, that's the one, anoint him. And David, from the runt of the litter of a, of a backwards place in Bethlehem, becomes, becomes Israel's greatest king. And it's the same in all of God's places and in all of God's workings. We think of James chapter 2 in which James says, Hath not God chosen the, the poor of this world, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised? Paul asks the Corinthians, he tells them in 1 Corinthians 1, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base, low, little esteemed things of the world, and things which are despised has God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to not, to bring to nothing things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God delights in taking mustard seeds and bringing them in to mustard trees. And Jesus is saying, this is what my kingdom is like. You see, well, why would that have been so surprising? Why would that have been difficult for the people of this day to understand? Well, friends, how do kingdoms normally grow? Do kingdoms normally grow? As we've seen from these, two from these two parables, imperceptibly, incrementally, and effectively, through no human agency or manipulation, through a kind of supernatural process, do kingdoms normally grow from the smallest of possible seeds to a great mustard seed? 
Why do people turn away from the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because in some ways it seems so small. It seems so out of the way. Why do some people manipulate the gospel of Jesus Christ? Try to build his kingdom through human methods. If we only have the right music. If we only have the right programs. If we only have the right gospel focuses, let's, let's cut out all this stuff about hell. Let's cut out all this stuff about Jesus being the exclusive, the only way. Then the kingdom will grow. What are we looking for? What are we looking to build? Human kingdoms. No kingdom growth by the sword. Like Peter taking a sword and trying to cut off someone who is coming to attempt to to arrest Jesus. Jesus says, my kingdom, that's not my kingdom. That's not my kingdom. That's not how my kingdom grows. People in our day and age try to grow their political kingdom by winning votes, by manipulating public opinion, by taking advantage of all the circumstances to grow. Jesus says, that's not my kingdom. My kingdom doesn't grow like that. My kingdom grows through the power of the gospel seed itself which goes down into hearts and grows imperceptibly, incrementally, and yet effectively. And that means, thirdly, we shouldn't just look at the principle of growth, not just the proportion of growth, but we should look, finally, at the promise of growth. What does this mean for you and for me today on this Memorial Day weekend? I think it means at least a couple of things. The first is something individually for you and me. What does kingdom growth look like in your life and in mine? Are you often discouraged by how little you seem to be growing in your faith? Do you get discouraged because sometimes you look and you say, I'm still committing some of the same sins I committed 10 years ago. I I look at myself and sometimes I'm just as selfish Today, as I was last week and last month and last year, God, why aren't I growing? Do you know there's great hope here? That ultimately the human, the ultimately the agent of your growth is not you, but God in the power of the seed he has put down in your life? How could Paul look at the Philippian church with some of its problems and some of its issues and looked at them and said, I am confident of this very thing that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ? How can he be so confident? You don't know whether they're going to keep on going. You don't know whether they're going to do everything they need to do. Paul said, it's not about you. He's the one who planted the seed in your heart. And it's through his divine power, through his divine processes, that you're becoming more like Jesus Christ. Just let him. I'm confident he's going to bring it to pass. Friends, there's great hope for you and for me in our spiritual growth when we realize the growth of the seed is not finally about me it's about what he's committed to do in our lives take heart but there's a second encouragement and a second comfort for us and that means corporately and collectively about the kingdom of God I don't know if you see today the kingdom of God becoming like a great mustard tree do you 
Do you look around at the American church and say, oh, the kingdom of God is becoming like a great forceful mustard seed, mustard seed so big that tree, I'm sorry, mustard tree that, that all the birds can come and lodge in. I don't know if that's what I'm seeing. But friends, what Jesus is saying is this. There's a promise. There's a promise of growth because his commitment is that though his kingdom came from very small and very humble origins, it one day will have its effect. It will have its consummation. It will have its harvest. No matter what you see now, no matter what your fears are of where the kingdom is in your life or in this world today, it is growing. God's plan is being accomplished and one day it will be brought to its final consummation and we will see it. See, when we look around at everything that is facing, as it were, an earthquake, it feels like everything is shaking around us. We look at our political system. We look at our economic system right now and inflation going through the roof. We were shaken as a country again this week by this awful uh, shooting, this school shooting in Texas. Just so many innocent lives being taken so cruelly and so evilly and all the political uproar over it and all the hand-wringing and all the shaking and the continued effects of health and safety concerns. And if we look there, we're going to be shaken too. We say, God, I don't see your kingdom growing. I don't see your kingdom making an effect. God, and then what's going to happen? We're going to give in to fear. And perhaps even worse, we're going to give in to anger or bitterness or hostility. Or perhaps even worse, we're going to start trying to manipulate the seed. We're going to start trying to change the gospel itself because we need to have a bigger effect. We need to make it a little louder. We need to make it a little more attractive for people to come in and build God's kingdom. And the message of these parables ultimately is don't worry. Don't worry. The seed is still going down into people's hearts and it's still growing up and producing fruit today and all across the world. Don't worry. You don't have to manipulate anything. It's not about you. It's ultimately about his purposes. You don't need to be concerned that the kingdom of God is being shaken. Remember the words of Hebrews chapter 12. Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, which cannot be shaken. No political earthquake, no cultural earthquake, no man-made earthquake can shake the kingdom of God. Because whether we see it or not, it's like a mustard tree. And one day it will be revealed to all as providing the security for all of God's people when Jesus Christ is reigning as king over it all. Don't be afraid. Don't lose your anchor. Don't be shaken. Because this seed that went down into the ground is and will be producing the growth for which God has purposed it. Jesus, Jesus, how does your kingdom grow? It grows imperceptibly in our individual hearts 
it grows incrementally in steps of grace in which he's conforming us to his image, and it grows impressively far out of proportion to its humble beginnings. Let's put our trust in him and his kingdom today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this principle of kingdom growth. We thank you that the kingdom of God will and cannot be shaken. Thank you for the king who reigns from that throne and one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. Thank you for the humble beginnings of your kingdom and its planting. Thank you for the way that kingdom grows in individual hearts. Thank you for the way your kingdom is continuing and being furthered even today. May we rest in that trust and in that hope that you are still on your throne and your kingdom is still growing today.